High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org students. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This. The podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is our final installment in our ongoing series, Six Degrees of Joan Crawford. Actually, I think I was just born dancing. And that's all I ever wanted to do in life. I know what you're like. <laughs> now, why can't you be friendly? But I am being friendly. No, I mean it. Friendship's much more lasting than love. It's called, uh, um. What's keeping you awake? Dreams. Bad dreams. I don't see how any home can be complete without children. I'm sorry this had to happen. No, you're going to listen. Joan Crawford died of liver cancer in 1977. She had suspected that she was sick for a while, but she refused treatment, ostensibly because she was a Christian scientist. But she also may have felt that she was running out of things to live for. Though Crawford reportedly quit drinking when she found out she had cancer, for the last part of her life, after she stopped making movies, she was known to drunk dial her friends and those she felt close to at strange hours, often for bitter recaps of what she had had and what she had lost and who had betrayed her along the way. 
she believed that chief amongst those betrayers were two of her four adopted children, Christopher and Christina. In Joan's mind, she had given her children every advantage that she herself had not had. But as we noted in our previous story about Barbara Payton, Joan Crawford had no charity for those who she perceived did not help themselves. Joan believed that she had risen from absolutely nothing to the top of the Hollywood food chain on the force of sheer will. And of course, nonstop hard work. She understood that it was slightly more complicated than that, but only slightly. Young Joan Crawford, before she was even called Joan Crawford, had been stunningly beautiful, had learned quickly how to perform before a camera, was willing to sacrifice in terms of diet and exercise in order to improve her naturally photogenic frame, and had been smart enough and able to effortlessly navigate the viper pit that was a late silent era run by men who made decisions based equally on bottom lines and their own baser instincts. And because of all this, MGM gave her the full backing of their star-making apparatus. For Joan Crawford, all of these talents and qualities fell under one umbrella. She had what it took. No one handed her anything, ever. She refused to acknowledge that she had ever had any kind of special treatment, or had ever been spared any kind of struggle. She didn't complain about what she had gone through, complaining was a sign of weakness. If she could get to where she got from where she was from, Joan reasoned, there was no reason why her children couldn't score, given that they began life on second base. Or there could only be one reason, that they didn't have what it takes. And the fact that they believed that they were somehow put upon was further evidence that they didn't have it. As we noted at the end of our last episode, the only American actress working while Crawford's career was winding down that Crawford believed had it was Faye Dunaway. What irony, then, that four years after Crawford's death, Dunaway was cast in a film about Crawford, which used Joan's relationship with her kids to distort Joan's image and on-screen legacy. What a tragedy that this film, in which Crawford is portrayed as a caricature of the star as split personality monster, whose perfect facade hides a desperation that knows no boundaries, resulting in child abuse, had a more lasting impact than most of the movies in which Joan Crawford actually acted. The biggest indignity? That this movie was based on a book written by Crawford's own daughter who would subsequently devote over 35 years to telling stories of her unhappy childhood, first as tragedy and righteous activism, and then as camp farce. That's right. Tonight is the night that we talk about Mommy Dearest, the disputes surrounding Christina Crawford's book, the troubled production of the film, and the impact it had on the world's perception of Joan Crawford and Faye Dunaway and the golden age of Hollywood and more. Join us, won't you, for the final chapter of Six Degrees of Joan Crawford.
Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash remember. netsuite.com slash remember. netsuite.com slash remember. When Joan Crawford died, her heirs consisted of her four adult children, and she left behind an estate worth just over a million dollars. Some personal effects were auctioned, including her jewelry, which Andy Warhol bought most of. Per Joan's will, her daughters Kathy and Cindy, not that Cindy Crawford, each inherited about $80,000, and the rest of the money was distributed to various charities. Her oldest children, Christopher and Christina, got nothing. Due to, as Joan put it in her will, reasons that are well known to them. Of course, everyone wanted to know those reasons. And that's why Christina Crawford decided to write them down. As she explained in the year 2001 to Larry King... First of all, I, I just wrote it for myself and my family. I, it was like a diary, a memoir, that kind of thing. I never really knew that it was going to be published. Really? And, no, I didn't. And, of course, it was my first book, so I didn't know. I sent it to some friends of mine in New York that were writers and uh, quite famous themselves, and they said this should be published. You said you wrote it for family. What family? Uh, my personal family and friends. I was married at the time, and uh, my brother and I were always very close. And I got, I think, after uh, Joan Crawford died and I was disinherited, there was a lot of um, sort of nasty, why does she disinherit her children, whatever, whatever. And I got tired of it. I really got tired of always having to explain, always having to defend myself. And I thought, I'm just going to sit down and tell the truth. Well, what happened was the truth was something that a lot of people knew, but many people were unwilling to acknowledge. Before Joan Crawford died, there were rumors that she had been a less-than-perfect parent to her four adopted children. 
When asked about this by one interviewer, Joan said, I'll give you their addresses and let you talk to them. I'd like to know myself what this mistreatment is about. I was a strict disciplinarian, perhaps too strict at times. But my God, without discipline, what is life? I have had problems with Christina and Christopher, yes. And right now things are rather strained between us. But it's a two-way street. And they have things to answer for, too. Not that she didn't have regrets about her time as a parent. I hate to generalize, but I really don't think the stars of my time should have had children, whether we bore them ourselves or adopted them. She went on to explain that a studio system star's life was too busy to share with children. You got up at the crack of dawn five or six days a week and came home at dusk if you were lucky. You didn't see your kids in the morning, and at night you were so goddamn tired it was all you could do to smile and kiss them goodnight. Over the decades, Christina's claims against Joan have become legend, helped along by the way they were depicted for operatics in the film of Mommy Dearest. But there are clips on YouTube of Christina speaking about her book on talk shows in 1978, right after the book came out and three years before the movie came out. Meaning that for most audience members, this was probably the first they had heard of Christina's accusations involving night raids and wire hangers. I was struck by her interview with Phil Donahue in particular, because Christina seems so cool and unemotional discussing her stories. It's Donahue who inflates Christina's stories into something emotional, into theater. Here are some excerpts from that Donahue show in which he asks her about some of the stories from the book, which were later to become legend. Uh, she, there were night raids in which she dragged you out of bed by your hair. That's right. She dragged you into, clo into your closet and, and began screaming as you were just waking up. I guess you probably thought you were in the middle of a nightmare. I did, yes. And she was screaming because there were wire hangers in your closet. Yes, my mother had very strict rules. Uh, we sort of lived uh, in a regimented fashion as though uh, we were in the army, I think. Everything had a prescribed time to be done and there were rules for everything, everything in its place, so to speak. Mm -hmm. If there was a minor infraction of those rules, uh, particularly if she had been drinking and particularly if it was late at night, Something took hold of her, I don't know, her own terror, her own fear, and she would focus on those minor infractions and punish me brutally sometimes because of it. I, in other words, your mother said in the will, I, I leave nothing to my daughter Christina. Yes. Or to my... Uh, to Christopher, my brother. For reasons which are best known to them. Well known to them. Well known to them. Yes. And you had to say, why? You wanted to know, okay, let's assume the worst. You don't... You're, you don't want to put me in your will. Why do you have to make this parting shot? I didn't understand that, and I still don't understand that. And uh, the will is being contested in the state of New York. My brother and I are contesting it, so that uh, I'm not really at liberty to say a great deal about it, because uh, we will have to go right. to trial. You also, you also stand there incredulous as you, as you read this document, which had been written about a year prior to her death. That's right. So it was written at a time when you thought you had some reconciliation with your mother. That's right. And you, you, you speculate in your book that here is your mother in death, reaching out of the grave and 
slapping you one more time. That's right. That's right. It was uh, it was very disturbing, very upsetting, and uh, particularly because I felt that, as I say in the book, that if it were simple disinheritance, uh, there was another way to go about it. I felt that my uh, uh, my reputation, my life, uh, was in question. Is it possible that your mother behaved this way? Well, I don't. I, I know this is. I don't mean to say we're all robots, but I wonder if you had been raised the way your mother had been raised. She lost her parents early, her father deserted her. I mean, she had a father who just took off, didn't come home. Then another man entered her mother's life, and she became attached to him, and he bailed out. You know what you're saying? I did have that same life. Very similar. But, Very similar. okay, well, my question is, if you had been raised as your mother had been raised, do you think you probably would have knocked your kids around, too? I pray to God I wouldn't. Then, Donahue takes a call from an angry Joan Crawford fan. The truth, Mrs. Crawford, Miss Crawford isn't here no, any longer to deny any of this. Oh, so you don't think it's true? No, I don't. You don't think that her daughter was hit over the head with a can of Bon Ami that, that sprayed all over her? Well, that's a possibility. Mothers do get mad. I mean, her mother could have uh, done something like that once and, and regretted it all her life, you know? Uh, there's a passage in the book wherein uh, Joan Crawford cut all the roses in the backyard well, in the middle of the night. Rose garden, isn't it? She also sawed down a uh, fruit tree. Well, that's her fruit tree, isn't it? I mean, I've done things like that. I have been mad and uh, the roses weren't taken care of by the children or something. And I've said, well, if you don't want to take care of the garden, then we'll get rid of the garden. They had a pony and I said, well, if you won't take care of the pony, we'll get rid of the pony. I mean, mothers do do that. That doesn't make you bad. I don't see why that should be traumatic. Uh, Christina Crawford commented. Well, I, I first of all, I want to say that there is a difference between disciplining your children and abusing your children. It's a very fine line for many people, but it's something that I think that it's uh, absolutely necessary to address ourselves to. We've had a philosophy, I think, for many years that uh, children belong to their parents, that they are extensions of their parents, and that the parents have the right to do anything they please. And I think we have to rethink that. Uh, I think for both the parent and the child, uh, it is vitally important to understand both people. Well, I uh, understand that, but I mean, we have... Let me, let me, uh, you haven't read the book. No, I've been reading the excerpts <clears throat> in either Inquirer or The Star. And each time I read them, I get more crazy. I mean... All right, I know. Okay, I must break. I, I'm... Well, may I just say one more thing? I, I don't think you're surprised Hello, at Mommy, the no. yeah. And what did she do? that her mother cut her off from the funds. All right, the one thing I'd like to say to you is that you're really at a disadvantage asking these questions because you haven't read the book. And I think that... Well, uh, my friends have, and they're as upset as I am. Well, the thing is, I think if you read the entire book, you will understand some of the answers to your questions. So that is part of Christina's side of the story. Here are a few things we know about Joan and Christina's relationship from the point of view of Joan Crawford biographers who believe Mommy Dearest to be a work of fiction. Joan frequently told stories that she felt demonstrated that Christina had always been selfish. In Charlotte Chandler's biography, Crawford notes that Christina was afraid of the dark and insisted that all the lights in the mansion be left on when the family went to sleep. In telling this story, Joan notes that she had a terrible time sleeping with the lights on, even while wearing a sleep mask over her eyes. This phobia of Christina's 
apparently persisted long enough that Joan's inability to sleep with the lights on became a real problem. But Crawford does not specify what, if anything, she did to get her daughter help dealing with her fears. What Joan remembers is her own selfless sacrifice of sleep for the comfort of her little girl. But remembering only her own sacrifice is, of course, as selfish as she wants us to think her very young daughter's behavior to be. Another story Joan related to Chandler has to do with one of the young Christina's birthday parties, at which Joan insisted that Christina carefully open every present without ripping the paper, and then take the open present on a tour around the room so that all the guests could admire the gift giver's generosity. After a dozen or so presents, after taking time to carefully fold the discarded wrapping paper and present the presents and go through the whole performance mandated by her mother, five-year-old Christina got tired and wanted to stop opening presents. Joan wouldn't let her stop, Joan explained, because that would hurt the feelings of all the children whose present hadn't yet been opened and paraded. What Joan remembers is Christina's ungratefulness. She can't acknowledge how hard it must have been for a five-year-old girl to submit to the grueling kind of performance that was all in a day's work for 40-year-old Joan. According to Christina, she spent most of her teen years at boarding school, away from and estranged from Joan, although the most serious incident alleged in Mommy Dearest when Christina claimed her mother tried to strangle her took place at Crawford's mansion when Christina was 13. After school, Christina moved to New York and tried her hand at acting. By this time, Joan was living in New York, too. Christina had wanted her mom to help her get a part in the 1965 film, I Saw What You Did. Christina was then 25, and the part was for a teenager. Joan told Christina that she would not help her, because Christina was too old for the part. Later, Joan refused to help her daughter land a part in another regrettable late Crawford picture, Berserk, in 1967. Christina is not ready to have such responsibility, Joan explained. To co-star with Joan Crawford? Isn't that a lot of pressure to put on the girl? On any young performer? Eventually, Christina moved back to California and went back to school. Sometime around this time, Joan decided to evict her adult daughter from the apartment she was living in, which was owned by Joan. Joan had apparently decided that her daughter had been ungrateful and disrespectful for too long. Christina claimed that her lack of acting success was not due to her mother not being willing to help her. It was due to her mother trying to compete with her. Her career was on the decline. Christina Crawford has said, My career was on the ascendancy. She really wanted to have my youth and my vitality, and she wanted to take from me. It became a very destructive process. She became so jealous of me. That seems impossible to believe, but if you understand an alcoholic woman sitting alone in her apartment, the only thing she really cared about in her life was being a star. And there was her daughter being the star. Mommy Dearest, the book and the movie both, make much out of the fact that in 1969, when 29-year-old Christina was hospitalized 
and was unable to continue shooting her recurring role on a soap opera called The Secret Storm, 60-something Joan filled in for her daughter, playing the same role. It seems like a stretch for Christina to point to this as a venue in which she herself had become a star, as The Secret Storm had middling ratings, and her mother only took over the part for four episodes. But neither Christina nor Joan seem like reliable narrators here, and the tendency of Joan's biographers to insist that Joan was actually trying to help her daughter just seems absurd. Some of these biographers are prone to making allowances or excuses for some of the events and behaviors described within. For instance, in their book, Lawrence Quirk and William Scholl write that when it came to discipline that Christina described as excessive, quote, the situations Christina found herself in were hardly unique or unusual. Times had changed from the mid-1940s to the late 1970s, to be sure, but according to these authors, in the days of Christina's childhood, quote, to discipline a child who refused to obey a parent was in no way considered child abuse. These authors also insist that Crawford, quote, did everything she could to help Christina in her acting career, to no avail. But this is after those same authors note several instances in which Joan refused to help Christina with her acting career. Most sources who have been willing to speak about Joan Crawford's life and career on the record have made uncomplicated statements contradicting Christina's account of Joan's parenting. Joan's youngest two children, Cindy and Kathy, have forever insisted that Christina's account of their mother is total bunk. Christina has retorted that those daughters were adopted after Joan had settled into middle age, and thus they got a different, more mellow mommy dearest. Douglas Fairbanks Jr. said the part about Joan beating her children with wire hangers couldn't have been true because she never would have permitted any wire hangers in her closet. Betty Barker, the longtime Crawford secretary who was fictionalized as Carol Ann in the movie of Mommy Dearest, said, quote, In 30 years, I never saw her do anything wrong with her children. I would swear to that. She deserved a lot better than she got back from the two older children she adopted. Christina Crawford has said in response that Betty Barker was always her enemy. But even Betty Davis defended Joan against Christina's charges. I was not Miss Crawford's biggest fan, but wisecracked to the contrary. I did and still do respect her talent. What she did not deserve was that detestable book written by her daughter. I've forgotten her name. Horrible. What a vile way to cash in on her mother's name. Miss Crawford wasn't my close friend. But what her daughter, who I understand was adopted, did was absolutely vile. Seven years after Mommy Dearest, Betty Davis's daughter, B.D., published her own tell-all on her supposedly naughty mommy, titled My Mother's Keeper. Most people believe that Christina wrote the book for money either to cash in on her mother's death or to punish Joan for disinheriting her. She did need the money, but she had actually begun writing the book before Joan died. In her final months of life, Joan found out through the grapevine that her daughter was writing a book, 
and she figured it wasn't going to be favorable. She said of Christina, I think she's using my name strictly to make money. Joan died before finding out what Christina's book would be called. But in a late-in-life interview with Charlotte Chandler, she spoke at length about the use of that phrase in her household. It's a passage that almost reads as if Joan was explaining the title of her daughter's tell-all from beyond the grave. I told Christina and Christopher that I'd like to have them call me Mommy Dearest. Christina understood that she could use it to get what she wanted from me. I didn't understand that, though, and it always worked. When she and Christopher said it to me as little children, I loved it. But looking back, I understood that when they said it in a chorus and looked at each other, they were mocking me. When she was grown up and not very friendly to me, she would come by once in a while to get some money, and she would begin in a wheedling tone. Mommy dearest, preceding her request. When she was a little girl, she really had my number. She was precocious in mommy psychology. From Christina's point of view, Joan just wasn't interested in a two-way relationship with her children. This is Christina in 2013. I think she wanted babies and and not people. Yeah. Uh, so yes, there are beautiful pictures of the two of us, sort of Madonna and child yeah, kind yeah. of thing. But um, as soon as I started being a person, uh, that all went south, basically. And then she got more babies and then more babies. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was sent to boarding school at the age of 10. So I never really lived at home after that. And well, maybe you were lucky. I, I was. It saved yeah, my life. Yeah. It, cha- it definitely saved my life. Not knowing anything about what really happened in that house while Christina was growing up, this feels like the accusation that rings the most true in light of everything I've learned about Joan Crawford. When her first adopted baby became a person with her own independent thoughts and feelings, Joan didn't know what to do. This would seem to tie into so much about her personality. The things that made her a great star and the things that made it difficult for her to maintain an intimate relationship with anyone for very long. Joan Crawford was not able to let other people challenge her. And this may have been in part because she was afraid of the absence they would find if they pulled away her outer layers. Joan admitted late in life that her two autobiographical books, Portrait of Joan and My Way of Life, published in 1962 and 1971, had been seriously massaged to protect that absence. Once her stardom began to fade, Joan was forced to admit that she herself didn't know herself. She had been presenting a persona for so long that she was completely out of touch with the real her. I've been protected by studio PR men most of my life, so I don't do a good job on my own, she said. I really don't know who to be. I'm a goddamned image, not a person. The problem with Mommy Dearest, both the book and the movie, is that rather than reveal the real, whole person, they also flattened Joan Crawford down into an image. In the case of the movie, this happened in the most literal way possible. The original poster for Mommy Dearest featured a black-and-white headshot of Faye Dunaway as Crawford, her eyebrows, cheekbones, and lips 
wildly exaggerated into a nearly grotesque mask under the tagline, The Illusion of Perfection. And this was back when the studio and the filmmakers thought that they had a serious movie on their hands. As we'll see, the audience for Mommy Dearest forced them to change their minds and change the marketing accordingly. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Perhaps because her reputation as a diva precedes her, something that's often overlooked about Faye Dunaway is that she's one of the most successful female students of method acting of her era, if not of all time. In her autobiography, Looking for Gatsby, which, like many movie star autobiographies, including Joan Crawford's, should not be taken at face value as the absolute truth, but at least can be taken as what Dunaway wants us to think is the truth. She gives much credit to what she learned as a member of the Lincoln Center Repertory Theater, where she studied with Bobby Lewis, Anna Sokolow, and Elia Kazan. Through them, and she specifically quotes Kazan in her book, she learned an approach to acting based on personal experience. As Dunaway described it, The bottom line on method acting is just that you experience the moment rather than indicate the moment. As part of the repertory company, Dunaway had been an understudy for Arthur Miller's After the Fall, and she was playing the lead in an off-Broadway play called Hogan's Goat when she was asked to meet with producer Sam Spiegel about a part in a film called The Happening. This would become Dunaway's debut, and she would credit co-star Anthony Quinn with teaching her how to perform in front of a camera. Dunaway's third film was Bonnie and Clyde, which she followed up with a massive hit, The Thomas Crown Affair. Her career slumped a bit. She had relationships with photographer-turned-director Jerry Schatzberg and Marcello Mastriani, and then came Chinatown. Two years later, Dunaway won the Best Actress Oscar for playing the manipulative, soulless television executive Diana in Network. Meanwhile, Christina Crawford had published Mommy Dearest and immediately sold the film rights to Paramount. She had tried to adapt the book into a screenplay herself, but her draft was rejected. The final script, which was apparently cobbled together out of many, many, many drafts, was credited to director Frank Perry, producer and former Paramount chief Frank Yablons, Yablons' future wife Tracy Hockner, and Robert Getchell, who had been Oscar-nominated for another story about a single mom, Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. The stream of mediocre and worse scripts for Mommy Dearest eventually scared off the first actress who was supposed to play the part of Joan, Anne Bancroft. There was also talk around town that Even if they could come up with a brilliant script, any actress who took on the role of Joan Crawford was destined for failure. Either they wouldn't be able to pull it off, or they'd pull it off too well. 
and subsequently be vilified for helping to take down one of the company town's greatest legends. Dunaway was considered for the role after Bancroft passed, and according to her, she accepted the part only after meeting producer Yablins and director Perry, who both assured her that they were seeking a more balanced portrayal of Joan Crawford's life than the one put forward in Christina's book, and that they were also planning to bring in material from another book recently published, Conversations with Joan Crawford. This was the book in which, amongst other things, a near-the-end Joan admitted to struggling with alcoholism. Dunaway had spent the past three years trying to have a family with her boyfriend, photographer Terry O'Neill, and had only filmed three movies and a TV miniseries since winning the Oscar for Network. They finally adopted a baby boy, Liam, in the summer of 1980. This gave her something in common with Joan Crawford, except that for 23 years, Dunaway kept up a public pretense that Liam was her birth child and not her adopted child. But that's a story for another day. The point is, when Dunaway began working on Mommy Dearest in late 1980 and early 1981, she was in a vulnerable position. She saw the film as her return to the spotlight after consciously downshifting in the immediate aftermath of Oscar. She had just adopted a child who was still an infant, which is not an easy age for a parent whether she gave birth or not, and she was a method actress who was going into playing a woman whose enormous stardom allegedly served as a cover for her secret life as the abusive parent of an adopted child. Faye came up with a theory as to the psychology behind Joan's relationship with Christina that she could relate to. Joan, Faye believed, wanted to give everything to this child of hers, because Joan herself had grown up with nothing. But, according to Faye, something went terribly wrong in Crawford's life. Christina was this cool little girl who didn't love her in a way she thought a child would love her, and she couldn't handle it. In order to play the part of Joan Crawford and remain true to her method, Faye Dunaway needed to empathize with Joan Crawford. And Dunaway says that her goal was to restore humanity to the caricature put forth by Christina's book. Though Dunaway never met Christina Crawford, the actress set herself up in opposition to the author. Crawford's then-husband, David Kuntz, had been hired as an executive producer on the movie. This would be the first and last producer credit for David Kuntz, but he was clearly there to represent Christina's interests. And as shooting was supposed to be getting underway in January 1981, Dunaway decided that she, too, needed a man on the credit sheet to protect her own interests. And so the film's start date was delayed because Dunaway refused to report to work until her partner, Terry O'Neill, was hired as an executive producer. This blackmail worked, and Mommy Dearest became, for Dunaway's boyfriend, just as it was for Christina Crawford's husband, the sole executive producer credit on a life resume that otherwise included no expertise in the production of movies. I should note here that this wasn't atypical. Women in Hollywood of the 1970s and early 80s with something to protect would sometimes use the man in their romantic lives as a kind of strong man. John Peters got from being a hairdresser 
to one of the defining producers of 80s blockbusters by being Barbara Streisand's boyfriend in between. But there were more David Kuntzes than John Peters, and these executive producer credits had a reputation for being meaningless. On the one hand, it was a sign of power for an actress to get their lesser-employed romantic interest a job. That's what much of the cast and crew on Mommy Dearest perceived this as. A show of power, a grab for an extra paycheck, in exchange for little to no labor. But neither man was an absentee producer. David Kuntz was on set basically daily. And where Faye Dunaway went, Terry O'Neill went. And according to Faye's account, Terry performed a very important function. He tried to protect her from a system that saw her performative energy as an infinite resource, even as the performance was physically hurting her. This was the theory, but in practice, the two executive producers slowed down production. I had two husbands to deal with, explained actual producer Gablins, David driving me crazy that Faye was trying to sanitize Joan, and Terry worried we were pushing Faye too far and creating a monster. They were. Roger Ebert visited the set, and when he first saw Faye Dunaway in costume, he didn't recognize her as Faye Dunaway. He exclaimed, My God, she looks just like Joan Crawford. This was a common reaction. Several members of the crew had known and or worked with Crawford, and they found the similarity to be remarkable. One told me it was like seeing Joan herself come back from the dead. Faye spooky bragged in her autobiography. But embodying a dead woman was no picnic for Dunaway. There was a physical toll to the part. To make her face look like Crawford's, Dunaway had to contort the muscles around her mouth just so and hold it all day long. And then... Dunaway started to feel like she couldn't clock out when shooting wrapped at the end of the day. Joan Crawford would literally follow her home. Literally, Faye Dunaway believed that she was being haunted by Joan Crawford. As she wrote, At night I would go home to the house we had rented in Beverly Hills and feel Crawford in the room with me, this tragic, haunted soul just hanging around. It was as if she couldn't rest. In the film's most famous scene, Dunaway certainly performed like a woman possessed. No wire hangers! What's wire hangers doing in this closet when I told you no wire hangers ever? Work and work till I'm half Dead, and I hear people saying she's getting old. What do I get? A daughter! Who cares as much about the beautiful dresses I give her as she cares about me? What's wire hangers doing in this closet? Answer me! While shooting this scene, Faye collapsed in the closet set in exhaustion. Terry threw a tantrum, yelling at Frank Perry, No more wire hangers! As in, we're done here. She can't shoot anymore today. It turned out that Faye had destroyed her vocal cords that day, 
and had to see a specialist recommended by Frank Sinatra before she could speak again. Faye admitted that the day she lost her voice, she also lost her passion for the movie. Ultimately, Faye wrote, The whole crew felt the weight of Joan's ghost, to the extent that when shooting finished, they didn't even have a rap party, because no one felt like it. This doesn't seem to be at all true. Rutania Alda writes about the film's rap party at length in her book, and she notes that Faye just didn't show up. I wonder if maybe, by that point, no one wanted Faye there, so they just told the star of the movie that there was no rap party. Stranger things have happened in Hollywood. This is where we should probably back up and note that Faye Dunaway's version of the story of the filming of Mommy Dearest is much like Christina Crawford's version of Joan Crawford, selective in its details and widely disputed. Luckily, we have a counter-narrative. The Mommy Dearest Diary of Rutania Alda. Rutania Alda is, like Dunaway, a New York Method-trained actress. She had studied with Lee Strasberg, who dropped Rutania when she refused to marry him, and then she had been mentored by Barbara Loden, the actress and director who became the second wife of Dunaway's early teacher, Elia Kazan. Faye and Rutania were about the same age. They both had worked with some of the great directors of the 1970s, and both had had affairs with one of them, Jerry Schatzberg. Their paths had crossed several times before Mommy Dearest, which Rutania was well aware of, and Dunaway was totally oblivious to. But then... Dunaway had a tendency to be so self-absorbed as to inspire vicious gossip. Dunaway told Alda that she had never gotten close to Barbara Loden. Alda writes that Loden told her that Dunaway, quote, was always up in the rafters screwing somebody when she was supposed to be understudying after the fall. The major difference between Dunaway and Alda was, despite their similar training, that Faye had become a movie star essentially with her first major movie, while Ritania, who was nearly 40 when Mommy Darius was filming, had never had a lead role in a film. Eight years after getting what should have been her big break as one of Philip Marlowe's neighbors in The Long Goodbye, she was still plugging away as a working actress. She played a supporting part in The Deer Hunter, but even after that film won Best Picture, Rutania still took what she could get, which included an uncredited role as a gynecologist in Rocky II. Rutania Alda's diary of the making of Mommy Dearest is valuable as an eyewitness account of that movie, but even if you don't care about Mommy Dearest at all, it's worth reading as a portrait of what it was like to be in spitting distance from fame in 1981 but to not be able to quite get there, and to still have to worry about things like credit card bills and dressing to impress casting agents in order to secure future employment. Rutania was put up by the production at the Chateau Marmont, where she shared a suite with her cat and Richard Bright, her actor husband. In between call times on the movie, which were often postponed or changed at the last minute due to delays caused by Dunaway's preparation process, Rutania walks her cat around the chateau's pool on a leash and worries about the whereabouts and well-being of her husband, who is battling an addiction to heroin and cocaine and spending Rutania's paychecks as fast as she can bring them home. 
at work, Rutanya is playing the one person who loves Joan unconditionally and stays loyal to her to the end. Rutanya decides that however difficult Faye can be, she will sacrifice her own ego in order to stay on the star's good side. As a method actress, this was the only way Rutanya could play Carol Ann. But in her diary, she notes over and over again what an odd position she's in. Most of the cast and crew around her spend their days gossiping about Faye Dunaway, whose whims and tantrums rule the set. Dunaway has refused to work with the expert period film wig maker and instead hires Goldie Hawn's hairdresser from Private Benjamin. According to Alda, Dunaway was constantly forcing changes in her hair and makeup, screaming and yelling at the crew members working on her image. Costume designer Irene Sharoff, who had been around forever and had worked with Judy Garland at MGM in the 1940s and after, told Alda she suspected Dunaway was a drug addict and that she had never worked with anyone so crazy, selfish, erratic, and instant gratification motivated as the actress playing Joan Crawford. Eventually, Sharaf walked off the film. When they did hair and makeup tests on Alda, the director kept sending Rutania back to the chair, telling Rutania that she looked too beautiful, that Joan Crawford would never hire a woman who looked that good. Eventually, he admitted that this was less to suit the character, and more because Faye would not work with an actress who she perceived to be competition to her. Rutania had big ambitions for her part, but over the course of the four-month shoot, she came to understand that no woman in a Faye Dunaway movie could expect to get any decent screen time. Partially because Faye manipulates the director to make sure she's the center of attention, but mostly because she requires so much attention that by the time they get around to shooting anyone else's close-ups, there's only time to do one take. Dunaway couldn't stand to be looked at while she was acting, so not only was Mommy Dearest a closed set, but actors who were supposed to be in scenes with her would be forced to stand behind the camera with their backs to Faye unless they absolutely had to share the shot. In those scenes, Faye would always ask for new blocking to ensure that her co-stars wouldn't face the camera. In one scene that's supposed to take place later in Joan's life, Alda's Carol Ann wears old age makeup, but Faye refused to wear her own aging makeup that day, so Joan looks inexplicably like she's time-traveled to the future to hang out with her aged assistant. Director Frank Perry totally indulged Faye because he was afraid that she had the power to get him fired. Alda said that she went along with Faye's requests because that's what Carol Ann would have done, although she vented her frustrations in her diary, which is full of commentary like, It's being shot on my back! Not my face. Carol Ann gets screwed. Again. This wasn't the worst thing an actor in a scene with Faye had to put up with. While shooting the scene in which Joan forcibly cuts Christina's hair, Faye allegedly gave child actress Mara Hobel real bruises on her arms and actually stabbed her with real scissors. By the end of the shoot, People on set were whispering that Faye had lost herself in playing Joan Crawford, that she thought she was Joan Crawford. Maybe that was true. It actually aligns with Faye's own version of events. But as Alda noted, the difference was that for much of her career, until vodka and bitterness began to overwhelm strategic thinking, 
Joan Crawford was savvy enough to get exactly what she wanted on a set and have the crew walk away feeling lucky to have met and worked with her. Most members of the cast and crew of Mommy Dearest walked away vowing, never again. At least, everyone thought, the movie will have been worth it. When you watch Mommy Dearest today, it's incredible to imagine that everyone involved with its production, everyone, believed that it was a serious movie. Dunaway's face in Joan Drag is treated as a reveal. We see her entire morning routine as the credits play, including her drive to the studio and portions of her morning in the on-set makeup chair, but we don't see her full face until exactly five minutes in. She turns to face the camera and she pauses, completely unnaturally for the context of the scene, so that the viewer can drink her in. This would be one thing if it was a brief indulgence and then the movie became more realistic or less exaggerated in its depiction of Crawford. But instead, it seems to jump from visual punchline to visual punchline. Three minutes later, she's having shower sex. The film's inability to take Joan seriously as a human being only gets worse when her behavior gets worse. The scene in which Joan strangles her daughter, which in Christina's depictions of her real experiences pop out as without a doubt the worst moment of her childhood, the night when Joan definitely went too far, is played in Mommy Dearest totally without horror or nuance. It never seems like the movie Christina is really in danger, and if she was, you wouldn't care. Because as played by Mara Hodel and Diana Scarwood, Christina is just as petulant and ungrateful as Joan accused the real one of being. Mommy Dearest was initially promoted as a serious biopic, and Dunaway's performance as a tour de force. And then the movie opened, and it became impossible to ignore the public reaction. Audiences were filling theaters and howling in laughter at scenes that had been intended to be horrific and deeply dramatic. Within a week, Paramount decided to go with the flow. They pulled the original ad campaign and replaced it with one that highlighted the film's demonstrated camp appeal. No wire hangers ever, read the new ads. Faye Dunaway and Mommy Dearest, the biggest mother of them all. Producer Yablins was so offended by the change in direction that he filed a lawsuit against Paramount for treating his movie like a punchline. Needless to say, Mommy Dearest was not the career relaunch Dunaway had planned it to be. One of the eight Razzie Awards given to the film went to her. She then retreated to Europe. She continued to work as an actress, memorably playing the villain in the very weird Supergirl, but didn't do the work of being a movie star until 1987, when she separated from O'Neill, moved back to the U.S. with their son, and starred opposite Mickey Rourke in the Bukowski-scripted Barfly. But she forever blamed Mommy Dearest for kneecapping her career. This is something that never could have happened to the real Joan Crawford, because within the studio system, no one movie could ever have had that much impact, and no actress would have been allowed to disappear to Europe to clear her head or whatever. In Joan's day... There was no Razzie Awards. When you had a bomb, you got back to work. When you had a hit, 
you got back to work. Be kind to your mind with guided meditations from the Meditation for Women podcast. Your mental health benefits from sleeping better, releasing anxiety, and gaining clarity, all of which are benefits of meditation. And since this is Mental Health Awareness Month, give yourself the gift of meditations. All you have to do is press play and close your eyes. Listen to Meditation for Women on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. The failure of Mommy Dearest had no mother. The crew blamed Faye, but above all, Frank Perry for showing no balls at all in dealing with Faye. Faye claimed that she was lured into the role on the promise that everyone wanted to tell a more complete version of the story than the one in Christina's book. She said that despite her and her future husband Terry's efforts, they had been unable to add nuance to Christina's side of the story. Christina didn't think the movie was faithful enough to her book, and she too blamed Dunaway. Christina suffered what has been described as a near-fatal stroke in August 1981, a month before the movie opened, and she said that doctors had told her that the abuse she suffered as a child had been partially to blame. She ended up buying the rights to Mommy Dearest back and re-releasing the book in 1998 with added material. She's since made a cottage industry of rehatching her complaints about her mother. After stints running a bed and breakfast and working at an Indian casino, Crawford launched a one-woman show called Surviving Mommy Dearest. Thus, Joan Crawford, maybe the great classical Hollywood star who was happiest selling her wares within the marketplace defined by the studio system, has continued to be a commodity in death. Except that what Christina Crawford sold and continues to sell seeks to destroy everything that Joan built up in the public eye while turning Joan Crawford into at best a laughingstock and at worst, the very image of child abuse. The tricky thing in talking about this, of course, is that we don't really know what happened. A lot of people who knew Joan have declared that she could never have done the things that Christina has accused her of. But a lot of victims who accuse powerful people have their claims dismissed. And certainly that was more the case when Christina Crawford was a child than it is today. When Christina describes situations in her childhood, when she was blamed for fights between her and her mother, and policemen told her that she could either stay at home with her mother or go to juvenile hall, I believe her. But she's also said a few things that sound totally nuts, like her frequent insinuations on talk shows and in her one-woman show that Joan Crawford killed her fourth husband, Alfred Steele. The story of Joan Crawford is the story of a woman who rose from abject poverty to the pinnacle of an industry that didn't even exist when she was born. Once one of the most famous women in the world, she struggled to keep her career going as the industry around her changed and Father Time betrayed her. She was a woman whose trajectory paralleled that of the century she rose and fell with, who at her peak in 1945 could never have foreseen the postmodern moment that would have her legacy frozen in amber as a banshee 
armed with a wire hanger. She sacrificed. She made mistakes. She didn't have a lot of successful long-term relationships with men, with friends, or with family members. She was at least a strict disciplinarian of her two older children. And her aggression may have edged into what we would now see as abuse. Some people see an artist's work as separate from that artist's personal mistakes and flaws as a human being. I don't see them as separate. This is all part of who Joan Crawford is and was. To me, even if all the worst things alleged about Joan Crawford are true, that doesn't detract from her body of work or make me loathe to praise it the way that the allegations against Woody Allen make it difficult for me to assess new Woody Allen films on purely creative grounds. When it comes to Joan Crawford, I see a woman who was so determined to triumph within a system that didn't care about her as a human being that she sacrificed a good deal of her own humanity to do it. And I see the star of some of my favorite films about women made during the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s, and 1950s, who was in so many ways the perfect star of her time and totally incompatible with our time. That's probably why it's the caricature that not only survives, but thrives. Hopefully, over the course of this series, you got to know a few movies, which deserve at least as strong and lasting a fascination. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. This episode was written, narrated, and produced by Karina Longworth. That's me. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our editor is Sam Dingman. And our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. For more information about this episode and other episodes, please go to our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. We're about to go on hiatus for several months. So this would be a really good time to subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts to make sure that once we have new episodes, you get them right away. You can also rate and review the show. That helps other people find it, as does tweeting about us. We're on Twitter as at RememberThisPod, and you can find us on Facebook and Instagram, too. If you have any questions or suggestions for the podcast while we're on hiatus, you can email us at you must remember this podcast at gmail.com. And we'll be back in 2017 with more tales from the secret and forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. <laughs>